Uh, my name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, today's going to be a, a unique sermon. We're going through Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians. In the first half of the letter, we've seen that Paul laid out how Jesus defines our past, present, and future. We are loved eternally by God, sealed in his spirit, forgiven, and now can be a part of God's family, the church. And the second half of Ephesians teases out how that looks for us day to day. And here in this section, Paul is describing how Jesus changes relationships. We've looked at wife and husband, child and parent. And today we come to slaves and masters. Because slavery was prevalent in the Roman times. But here's the issue. If Ephesians was the first book of the Bible you ever read your first exposure to Christian thinking, living, and documents, and you get to chapter 6, and you read what Paul writes when he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Alarm bells should start going off. Because if there's one thing the vast majority of Americans in the 21st century agree on, it's that slavery is wrong. So instead of slaves, obey your masters... Why isn't isn't Paul writing, masters, free your slaves? In fact, nowhere in the New Testament is it explicitly commanded that slaves should be freed across the board. Why not? Well, I think that Christians and non-Christians both would like to know. In fact, this is one of the more emotionally powerful arguments non-Christians have against Christianity. The Bible seems to support slavery. Does it? How does the Bible talk about slavery? I don't think it would be helpful or right for us just to skim over this. I want to be able to, and I want our members to be able to, answer our non-Christian friends' questions about slavery and the Bible. So we're going to spend two Sundays on it. And today we're not even going to look at Ephesians. Instead, we're going to read Paul's shortest letter to an individual named Philemon because it deals directly with slavery and gives us a view into how the apostles were thinking about it. I'm going to read the letter in just a second. It's a short letter, but you can get lost in the rhetoric. Here's what you need to know. Philemon is a rich Christian dude who leads a house church in the city of Colossae. His slave, Onesimus, ran away and found Paul, who was hundreds of miles away in Ephesus in prison. There, Paul converted Onesimus to Christianity, and now he is sending Onesimus the slave back to his master, Philemon, the church leader. We're going to read this, trying to answer this question, how does Jesus and how are his followers supposed to address injustice like slavery? Why doesn't Paul just outright tell Philemon to free Onesimus? The answer is simple but also hard. Freedom isn't enough. Paul is asking for something far greater. So follow along as I read Paul's letter to to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus And for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, slave actually, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers... I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and uh, we ask you to be here with us by your spirit, that you might help us to hear and believe uh, what you have for us. Uh, Please help us to sort through this uh, incredibly uh, difficult, sad uh, topic of slavery and, and what you are calling your people to do about injustice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that sense of dread that you sometimes get in the pit of the bottom of your stomach? You know, your mouth gets dry, your hands get clammy. What can cause that for you? For some of us, it's flying. For some of us, it's taking a test. For some of us, it's public speaking, right? Doing what I'm doing right now. Preaching about slavery gives me this pit in my stomach. But for me, it was when I was a kid and I'd misbehaved in school. And a letter gets written and sent home to my parents. Of course, my mom is there when I get home, so she reads it first. But she's not going to do anything about it. We're going to wait till dad gets home. And so I just have several hours of stewing this pit in my stomach, this anxiety building up until I hear him pull up in the car, open the door, and whistle hello. It was just terrifying. That kind of discomfort is what Paul is calling Onesimus to. But he's also calling Philemon to it and us as well. Paul in this letter is asking the main characters involved to do something scary, difficult, painful, and costly something that creates a pit in your stomach. And like I said, he's asking that of us too. So we're going to take a look at what justice costs. We're going to go through it by these characters. And first, we're going to see it's costly for Onesimus. Let's start here looking at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. 
I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Onesimus, Philemon's slave, had run away, and he had found Paul several hundred miles away while Paul was in prison. And we don't know if he went looking for Paul or if he just happened to stumble upon him. But he is a fugitive slave. And Onesimus connects with Paul and there becomes a Christian. Right? Paul baptizes him and brings him into the faith. And now Paul is sending him back back to Philemon, back to the church at Colossae. We know that this is in Colossae because Paul's letter to the Colossians names these same people. At some point previously, Philemon had also been converted by Paul, probably on a business trip, business journey to Ephesus. So Paul is a father in the faith to both Philemon and Onesimus. But sending a runaway slave back to their owner is not a no-brainer. If caught, A runaway slave in the Roman Empire could be crucified, beaten, sold off to somewhere else, or otherwise punished. If masters didn't want to do the dirty work of punishing their slaves, professionals in every town would happily beat or whip their slaves for a very low price. A master had nearly complete complete control, power of life and limb over his slaves. And you might have heard that Roman slavery uh, was lighter or less harsh than the Atlantic slavery of the modern era. But that's not actually accurate. While Roman slavery was not race-based and had higher rates of manumission, people being freed, and there was more social mobility for slaves, U.S. slavery gave more protection, legal protection, to slaves. Whereas in the U.S. it was culturally prohibited and taboo to have sexual relations with slaves, though it did happen plenty, in Rome it was culturally accepted and encouraged. Slaves men, women, and children, were seen as legitimate sexual outlets for the male master. Men were encouraged to use their slaves and prostitutes rather than seduce a free woman. In Roman slavery, if a slave needed to testify in a criminal or civil proceeding, evidence would be extracted by them by physical torture. It was simply assumed that slaves couldn't be trusted. Whatever they had to tell had to be extracted by torture. There are stories of wives who were certain of their husbands' infidelities, and they would bring slaves before the magistrate over and over and over again to be tortured to try to produce some kind of evidence against their husband. If a slave killed a master for any reason, Roman law said every slave in the household had to be put to death. Around the time of Jesus, a wealthy Roman named El Pedanius Secundus was killed by his slave, which meant every one of The man's slaves had to be killed. But this man owned 400 slaves. Men, women, children. The Roman Senate debated the case. And though the common people actually protested, the senators decided it was more important to uphold the law and deter future slave attacks. All 400 slaves were put to death. I could go on. Slavery in the Roman Empire was horrific. Paul here says he loves Onesimus, is his very heart. So why isn't he sending him off in the opposite direction, to Spain, 
to get as far away from Philemon as possible. Instead, he's sending him back to his master. Why? It's not that Paul had some kind of loyalty to the institution of slavery. In fact, his Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, would tell him not to send Onesimus back. The chief miracle of God in the Old Testament, the primary picture of salvation, is God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt, then again from slavery in Babylon, then again from slavery in Persia. The Old Testament is an inherently anti-slavery text. And so the laws Moses gave Israel were by far the most lenient around slavery in the whole ancient world. Israelites were not allowed to own other Israelite slaves without their consent. And they would be freed every seven years, the Sabbath year and every year of Jubilee. Israelites could have foreign slaves in the more traditional sense. But as the text from Deuteronomy here shows that I quoted in the front of the bulletin, if a slave runs away from their master, Israel could not send them back. Israel had to let that slave settle anywhere they wanted to. As most southern politicians in the 1850s would happily explain, if runaway slaves aren't sent back to their owners, then slavery itself collapses. If slaves are set free at regular intervals and runaway slaves are not sent back to their masters, slavery becomes a voluntary institution. Slavery has been around in every culture, and the Old Testament was subverting it 3,000 years ago. Paul knew all these things, so why does he send Onesimus back? Because the new community Jesus creates and the justice he brings is better than mere legal freedom. You'll see what I mean in a moment, but for now, you can imagine how scary it would have been for Onesimus to return to Philemon. Was Onesimus' life in danger? Paul seems to protect against that. Notice how he begins the letter, verses uh, 1 and 2. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. This is not a private letter to Philemon. Others are included as addressees, and he expects the letter to be read aloud to the church in their house. Notice how he closes, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers, also Timothy, greeted him. He names several people who know the contents of this letter. And then he also suggests he'll be coming to visit to just check and see how Philemon is doing. Unless Philemon is going to go completely rogue, Onesimus was safe from severe retribution. But more than that, sending Onesimus away would have been going too easy on Philemon. See, this is going to be costly for Philemon as well. Onesimus had to have a pit in his stomach going back, but Philemon also would have a pit in his stomach reading this letter, hearing it read aloud in front of the church in his house. Why? What was Paul asking him to do? We'll look again at verse 15. For this perhaps is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So Philemon is to receive Onesimus back. Forgive, forget, and be reconciled. How do I know? Well, Onesimus ran away, right, which is already technically theft. But beyond that, it appears he might have stolen something. He might have taken something of Philemon's. 
since Paul mentions that if Onesimus owes anything, Paul will pay it back. Paul is asking Philemon to receive and forgive a disobedient slave who has made a fool of him. And it's not just receive Onesimus back as he was before, but it's more than that. Now, treat him differently. Paul says Philemon is to take Onesimus back forever as a brother, not as a slave, to treat him as a partner, as he would treat Paul himself. It's not just forgive the naughty slave what he's done. It's elevating the slave to the status of brother and partner. And in this context, in Rome, Roman Empire, it's frankly impossible for an owner to raise a disobedient slave status without simultaneously lowering his own. Philemon is a successful citizen with resources, a community leader. Slaves, on the other hand, were considered to have no dignity, no honor, no past, no future, no humanity. Like Aristotle said, they're just living tools. They lived in a constant state of shame. At best, they could be faithful to their masters, but usually were considered childlike and incompetent, or worse, insolent, lazy, untrustworthy liars who would steal their master's property and kill their master if they could get away with it. And the fact that Onesimus had already run away and probably stolen some of Philemon's property suggests he's living down to these stereotypes about slaves. And Philemon needs to take him back as a brother and treat him with the same status he would treat Paul, like a peer or partner. The Roman world was far more status conscious than your middle school. Right? Remember your middle school experience. But it's similar in that there were spoken and unspoken codes of where people could eat, where they could congregate, what they could wear, who they could speak to, what they could do. Right? Rome was one huge, long middle school. That's why it's terrible. Don't ever, we'd never want to live in Rome. There's no way Philemon could do this. There's no way Philemon could receive Onesimus the way Paul is asking him to without losing social status in the eyes of his peers. He would be committing middle school social suicide. Imagine the person in your world, in your experience, who has the least social capital, who has the most shame in the eyes of your peer group or groups that you aspire to. Imagine you're at a dinner party with people you enjoy, whose opinions matter to you, and this shameful person sits next to you and shadows you throughout the evening as your guest, your sibling, your friend and partner. Now others will identify you with this person. You feel squeamish about that. Multiply that by a thousand, and that's what Philemon would have been feeling. It would have been so much easier and cleaner for Paul to write a letter saying, Onesimus has found me, he's now a Christian, and he's going to be staying with me. Send me back a letter, Philemon, confirming his emancipation. I can imagine Philemon being like, sure, yeah, I'll sign that, whatever, he's already gone. But that's not the path Paul takes. Why? Well, Philemon might have been a great Christian leader and elder for surrounding property owners and free citizens, but Paul says... Here, I hear of your faith and love that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints and how the saints have been refreshed through you. Right? Sounds like Philemon can use his checkbook to support gospel ministry. But Philemon has a blind spot. Why is a slave running away from him? And why is a slave running away from him who is not yet a Christian? In the book of Acts, when a leader of a household gets converted, the whole house is baptized, including slaves and children. When God gave Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision, everyone in his household, including slaves, were to be marked with that sign. 
which included them in the covenant. Why wasn't Onesimus already baptized? A little bit of reconstruction fills in the blanks. Philemon didn't see how the gospel applied to his slaves or to himself as a master. Philemon is the one with the problem. Did you notice in this whole letter, Paul doesn't say, Onesimus is really sorry, please forgive him. He apologizes for his part in the conflict, which, by the way, there were letters like that. We found letters like that, where someone of higher standing says, oh, this person of lower standing is really, really sorry, please take him back. Paul doesn't do that. Onesimus is not the one in the wrong, even though he ran away. Philemon is, which is why Paul has to send Onesimus back. The kingdom Jesus brings smashes humanity's false hierarchy of status and power based on pride and violence. The church should be the place that makes war on man-made distinctions and oppression and injustice. All people will be treated as invaluable treasures of God. Treasures God considered worthy sending his son to die for. This, as we see in our modern era, is far more difficult and revolutionary than simply abolishing slavery which we've seen did not bring racial reconciliation or demolish sinful social hierarchies based on ethnicity, wealth, or whatever else. Of course, what Paul is describing in this letter and what is commanded elsewhere for Christians in the New Testament would end slavery within the church. What is left of slavery if you are treating everyone as brothers and equals in Christ? In fact, if Philemon does what Paul says, it would amount to what is known as an informal manumission for Onesimus. In Rome at this time, there was a formal way to free a slave and an informal way. The formal way was very bureaucratically difficult, so most slaves were freed informally. The master just began treating them as freed men, but they were usually bound by a written contract, and the master would receive a lump sum of money from the slave to make this happen. The freedman would become like a dependent client of the master. Paul is saying to Philemon, you will informally free Onesimus with no strings attached. You will treat him as an equal, and whatever money you think he might owe you, I'll pay it. In the church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ first. It's not about rights or power or status. Underneath that unity, we work out the details of our relationships along the lines of love and respect and personal sacrifice. Doing community the way Jesus and the apostles teach and describe would make the horrific institution of slavery in the ancient and modern world impossible within the church. But unfortunately, that's not how it played out, is it? So there's something here costly for us. There's something here we need to see. Because the church did not seem to get what Paul was saying to Philemon or anywhere else about slavery. Early on, there are instances uh, of churches purchasing slaves' freedom. Easter became an occasion when churches would see mass emancipation of slaves. But we only know that because church leaders were writing to these churches to tell them to stop doing that. They told churches not to harbor runaway slaves. They used this letter to Philemon as proof that slaves were to be sent back. They didn't use this text as intended, that masters would treat their slaves as brothers in Christ. This was and remained a massive blind spot for the majority of the churches and Christians for 1,800 years. Yes, modern abolitionists were Christians, but they were in the small, extreme minority. 
Christians affected all kinds of social change in the Roman world. Better treatment of women, children, and the poor. Men were held to the same sexual standards as women. Abandoned children were scooped up by the dozens so that, so that they wouldn't be taken as slaves or exposed uh, and die. The sex slave trade was attacked and partially dismantled. The poor were cared for. And when plagues hit cities, Christians would stay and nurse everyone, Christian and non-Christians alike. They changed the world. But this message about slavery was not absorbed. Instead, the church generally saw things from the owner's and master's perspective, affirming the social stereotype of slaves. It sided with those who had power. Slaves were returned to masters without any change in status or accountability for how masters would treat their slaves. The U.S. Federal Constitution, quoted it here in front of the bulletin, written mostly by serious Christians in 1787, says that runaway slaves who cross state lines will be returned to their owners. 3,000 years before, Moses said runaway slaves should not be returned. The Bible didn't get slavery wrong. The church did. Millions of sincere Christians got this terribly wrong with horrific consequences. So the costly thing for us, Paul is asking, what might we be getting wrong now? 1,800 years. What might we now be getting wrong? How might we be reading and applying Scripture from the vantage point of those with high status and power rather than from the vantage point of the weak, the marginal, and those of lower status? Are we individually or as a church unconsciously strengthening sinful human hierarchy and status that opposes the gospel? I do not want to be an unwitting participant in injustice and oppression. What might we be getting wrong? I pray that God would save us from this. I'm sure we're all exhausted by how outraged everyone is about every possible kind of injustice. But don't ignore this example from history. All of us need to take an inventory of how we treat and think about people. What systems we participate in and why. How might our material and psychological interests keep us from truly hearing God's word? We need God's help to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. We need prayer toward this. And where necessary, repentance. Back in 2015, in the summer, our denomination, the PCA, had their annual gathering, General Assembly. It's where we talk and fight and make new rules. And this year, there was a debate about a statement that the denomination should adopt. And the statement was a confession of individual and church sins regarding complicity and involvement in racial injustice during the civil rights era up until the present day. Our denomination came out of Southern Presbyterian Church. It was originally based in Mississippi, so you can imagine there might be some things to confess. But this was debated, partly because, someone might argue, what does Grace South Bay have to confess? I didn't make this argument, but they would have made the argument, Grace South Bay started this year. What do they have, confessed, have to confess in terms of complicity of not helping in the civil rights movement? So the debate was heated, and it was getting late in the evening on the last day, and it looked like the statement wasn't going to be adopted. 
And then this old southern white dude stands up at the microphone in front of about 1,200 or so elders and pastors. It was Reverend Jim Baird, who was a former pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi, one of the founding churches in our denomination and still one of the most powerful. This is what he said. Mr. Moderator, and I can't do his accent. Mr. Moderator, in 1971, 12 men were elected to form a new denomination. It took two years. Of those 12 men, six were ministers and six were ruling elders. All have died or left the PCA except two, Kennedy Smart and me. So this is one of the remaining founders of our denomination. He goes on, and I confess that in 1973, the only thing I understood was that we were starting a new denomination, which we did. And I confess that I did not raise a finger for civil rights. I was tasked with one thing, and that was to start a new denomination for the sake of Scripture, for the sake of the preservation of historic Presbyterianism, and for the furtherance of the gospel proclamation. And so I confess my sin. I'm not confessing the sin of my father's. I'm confessing my sin and of those 12 men. Were we racists? No. But we did not do anything to help our black brethren. I confess personally that I did nothing. Everyone in the hall starts crying. Founding father of the PCA is saying, I messed up. I sinned. We sinned. We were wrong. Let's try to make it right. And then man after man got up and went to the mic and confessed their sins about their own racial bias, things they did, things they left undone. They asked for forgiveness and they prayed. It was an amazing moment. There's still so much work to be done, but that night changed things in our denomination. We need to grow that we might be slower to defend ourselves and quicker to repent. Now, you might want a one-page sheet on what kinds of laws and policies we should enact. How do we legally create a just society? Well, you're not going to get that from me. We all need to use our political power wisely and justly, but justice is also personal, relational, communal. A state can only do so much, but the church can do so much more. We might rather just vote and pay our taxes and be done with it, but Scripture doesn't let us off that easily. We are to be a community of justice and peace and reconciliation, and that's costly. It's costly financially. It's costly socially. It's costly in terms of time and comfort. We get involved with the homeless. We get involved with teen moms. We get involved with the formerly incarcerated. We get involved with the hungry. We get involved with racial reconciliation. We get involved with the lost and the hopeless. I was at a jazz concert this past January with Doug at Yoshi's in Oakland. We were seeing Jonathan Butler, an amazing jazz artist. He also writes some amazing worship music, and he and his band play in churches. And we were there as mostly African-American crowd, though we were at a small table with an older, wealthier white couple. And a woman came on stage to introduce the band, and she started with something like, Who here loves Jesus? And most of the crowd cheers loudly. And then the white woman next to us says, who here doesn't like Jesus? In kind of an angry way. No one listened to her. Doug uh, loves telling people that I'm his pastor. And so he told her that. 
So the show goes on. He does some amazing songs. I mean, it's like a worship service for half of it. And the show ends. And as people are getting up to leave, this woman says to me very sharply, are you really a pastor? Yeah. Then can you explain something to me? Yeah, sure. We took these people from their homes. She's talking about African Americans. We took these people from their homes. We made them slaves, and we shoved this religion down their throats. Why do they accept it? I want to know. And I did a little bit of kind of correcting the historical record. But then I said, well, you know, the whole story of the Old Testament is about God's people longing for slavery, longing for freedom and crying out for freedom from slavery. And God miraculously rescues them. And the New Testament is about a God who takes on flesh and identifies with the poor and the weak and slaves. Who'd ever heard of a God becoming a slave? But that's what Jesus did. And I think that's incredibly compelling for slaves and everyone. And she did seem to be satisfied with that answer. But here's the thing. Justice and peace was costly most of all for Jesus. And that seems to be what captured Onesimus' imagination. He didn't have to go back to Philemon. He could have kept on running. Why'd he do it? Why'd he go back? He must have caught the vision of the gospel that in Jesus we have the resources to do justice and to be reconciled with each other. Because Jesus came and identified with us, even slaves, and reconciled us to the Father. In him we have forgiveness, eternal value, and eternal life. Onesimus was already free in Christ. And he must have wanted that for Philemon too. So he was willing to risk his wrath. Onesimus knew full justice includes personal, relational repentance and reconciliation. It's costly for Onesimus and Philemon. But notice how Paul promises to Philemon, right? Whatever Onesimus owes you, I will repay. Paul will bear the cost to make peace. Will we? Because that's what Jesus does for us. He bears the cost of justice and reconciliation on the cross so that slave and master can be united to him. You know what? It appears that Philemon did get what Paul was saying, and he did comply with Paul's request. We know that 50 years from this time, the bishop of Ephesus was named Onesimus. And it's probably this Onesimus. Only a slave would have that name. And it helps explain why we have this little letter in the Bible. Bishop Onesimus kept including it in the sacred writings of the apostles. He wanted us to read about real freedom and justice. The world's way of doing justice is picking up a sword and pointing it at someone else or another group and saying, you're going to pay. But God's way of doing justice is to pick up the sword and point it at himself, and he says, I'm going to pay. People freed and empowered by that can do the costly work of reconciling master and slave, races, classes, nations. Let's ask God to do that work among us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this hard word. And we thank you um, that you call us to costly things because you've done the most costly thing for us in coming and dying for us. 
And we're grateful, Jesus, that you have risen and that you are now seated at the Father's right hand. That wherever we go, you go with us and all power in heaven and on earth is given to you. So we need not be afraid. Help us to enter into the dark places, the difficult places, the hard places. In our hearts, in our world, in our work, wherever we go. Help us to bring good news of reconciliation and justice and new life. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.